Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion, that USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, November 16th. I'm Scott Bland, your host, and you are listening to Politico's Nerdcast. We are going to start off this week talking about the big political story of the past week, which broke right after we finished recording uh, the last episode of the Nerdcast. Uh, But Roy Moore and the sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual misconduct allegations surrounding him in Alabama, the Republican nominee in the special Senate election there less than a month from Election Day, now buffeted by all these stories, raising the serious possibility that Republicans could lose the Senate seat in Alabama, which would be a big deal uh, politically, a big deal for the Senate, where they only have a 52-seat majority uh, at this point, and uh, just a shocking, shocking story. We're going to dig into uh, what exactly is going on behind these stories. We're going to talk to you a little bit about who the Democrat is, Doug Jones, running against Moore, and some of the efforts that Republican leaders have been making to try and get Moore out of the race, which uh, don't seem like they're going to work. They're on tenuous legal ground, and in any case, with the election so close, you know, some absentee ballots are already out. It's we are very close to the election and there it it seems barring some sort of major development that there's no turning back for the Republican Party and they're they're stuck with more on the ballot. We're also going to talk a little bit about Attorney General Jeff Sessions, who uh, got hauled in to testify before Congress again this week and whose appointment as attorney general has been kind of star crossed and uh, even before it caused all this trouble for the Republican Party in Alabama with that special election to replace him. And we're going to wrap up this week talking about the president's trip to Asia and uh, what happened and didn't happen there and how the Russia investigation once again kind of overshadowed a big foreign trip of his. Before we get started, I want to remind you, if you have questions for us, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. We'd love to hear from you. On a similar note, don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. All right, let's start by welcoming into the studio Senior Politics Editor Charlie Matessian. Hi, Charlie. Hi, Scott. We've got White House reporter Eliana Johnson here as well. Hello. And campaign pro reporter Daniel Strauss, who just got back from Alabama. Hi. Our first data point this week is the number nine, and that is how many women have come forward so far as of uh, Thursday late morning uh, to accuse Roy Moore of inappropriate behavior from dating them, pursuing them for relationships when he was in his 30s and they were teenagers to allegations of sexual assault. It has totally blown up the Alabama Senate race, which in the middle of a special election scheduled for December 12th, Moore is the Republican nominee uh, and uh, in a state that has not voted for anything but a Republican uh, for Senate in uh, over a quarter century and or about a quarter century, I should say. Moore is staying in the race, though. Uh, despite calls from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell and other Republicans, a lot of Republicans to drop out. So 
Daniel, you were on the ground in Alabama over the weekend. You got a very up-close look at why Moore is not going to drop out. You know, despite all this, a lot of this denunciation is coming from people who he never liked and never liked him in the first place. He's still got fans, despite all this. Right. And these are fans in the state party. These are local politicos. And these are the, the I, I wouldn't even call them the diehards. These are the actual people who are going to get folks out to vote. Uh Moore won the uh, primary partially on a wave of disinterest or disdain for national Republicans like Mitch McConnell. And now we're in a situation where these guys who didn't help him in the first place, he feels, are calling for him to get out. And the people who have supported him are still with him. And you were at Moore's first event uh, over the weekend that he had since the Washington Post broke this story on on Thursday of last week, right after Nerdcast finished recording, I should add, uh, in, an, in an unfortunate episode of the Nerdcast curse. That That's we pretty were much un- every week. <laughs> unable to discuss last week. But Daniel, what was what was the reaction like at that event? And what did Moore say? He was not, you know, he, he has not uh, uh, said he done, he's done anything wrong. Right. I mean, it was denial and it was constant blame at the media and the Washington Post. And I had a friend actually who was there too from the Washington Post. And she said every person she went up to sort of laughed and rolled their eyes when she tried to ask them a question. <laughs> I mean, the blame really is uh, these people really uh, believe that this is a quote unquote witch hunt, as Moore says. Uh, Moore's campaign uh, is trying to turn the page, is trying to cast doubt on these allegations and uh, uh, bring up further questions about, say, uh, the accuser who stood with uh, Gloria Alred in New York. Um, and the feeling is that this is just a, a move by powerful outside interests to influence an election that uh, could easily go the way of Roy Moore. So – and now an important caveat to that. Th- this is the feeling among more supporters. And I think there's a key distinction to make. Like we know that he still has supporters because you saw them and we're hearing from them. Uh, but we don't know how numerous they they are. And that that's where we get to the state of play of this race. You know, the, the polling is going to be – has been totally muddled and probably will continue to be totally muddled because this is a special election and turnout is already crazy for these things and you never know what's going to happen. But um, the Republican leadership thinks that, thinks that Moore is toast and that he's – Losing big and going to lose big. And Eliana, uh, you and Alex Eisenstadt were reporting yesterday about exactly what that has driven them to consider. It's kind of sent them down this rabbit hole of fairly implausible legal outs uh, that seem – well, you, you can tell us. But it, my impression was that none of this seems likely to come to pass. But they're they're, 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 they're <laughs> the reading least. the Alabama election code very closely right now to try and look for an off-ramp. Yeah, there are some seriously depressed aides in Mitch McConnell's office who are uh, frantically leafing through obscure provisions in Alabama election law right now um, and getting increasingly panicked. So the first um, – option that came up was the idea of running a writing candidacy because it worked for Lisa Murkowski in Alaska when she lost her primary. And the thought was that Jeff Sessions, the attorney general, had the name recognition to do this. But then, of course, that raised the problem of getting another attorney general confirmed. And it relied on the 
necessity of Trump pushing out Sessions, who wants to stay in that job and was resistant to the idea of doing that. And right now, it doesn't seem to me like the White House, even though people like Mark Short and Kellyanne Conway and Ivanka Trump have come out and denounced more, it doesn't seem like the president himself is particularly eager to get involved in this, though it's Thursday uh, mid-morning and we'll see what the president does later today. Um, The president doesn't seem like he wants to jump into the middle of this. So that option seems like it is very unlikely. So the second option mulled was either expulsion from the Senate if more wins or refusing to seat him. And that uh, refusing to seat him seems constitutionally untenable. Um, And expulsion raises the prospect that the guy actually wins. But it seems increasingly unlikely. And I think Republican leaders don't want to give the seat up. They It looks now like Doug Jones, the Democrat, is going to win. So this third option has emerged, which is that Luther Strange, who was appointed to basically be a warm body when Jeff Sessions oh. was nominated to be the attorney general and fit, uh, sit out the rest of his term, um, that he resign, and which would trigger a new election. But Luther Strange's office is pushing back against this vehemently and saying that if he were to resign, it would trigger a new election and that person would uh, be elected only to serve until the end of his term on December 12th. So it does which seem... Which is impossible. You can't hold an election r- r- in less right. than a month. So so it does seem like uh, McConnell and the White House are facing, uh, you know, a lose, lose, lose uh, proposition, just a series of bad options. And it's not clear to me that they're going to be able to find a way out of this. There's also I mean, earlier this week, there was some discussion that the Alabama GOP steering committee could possibly stop more from becoming a senator through some sort of technical measures with the secretary of state. But to illustrate how much support Moore has, uh, there are a lot of members on this 21-person body that support Moore, either tacitly by by just saying, I support the nominee, Moore is the nominee, or overtly. And they're not interested in doing anything right now uh, to block Moore. So, Charlie, this all raises the frankly, insane prospect that a Democrat could win Senate seat from Alabama in 26 days. Yeah, and I still find that hard to believe when you look at the uh, the, dem- the demographic uh, or makeup of the elections there, who votes, and if you look at electoral history, even in such an extreme circumstance uh, as this. I mean, the, there is a limited pool of Democratic voters. I mean, it's it's almost like, uh, you know, a bank shot that you have to call uh, and you shoot it off this side and then that. You know, all sorts of things have to happen. Uh, you have to have a big uh, African-American turnout. You'd have to have, I, I, I would imagine, a suppressed Republican turnout in parts of the state. It's still hard for me to imagine because keep in mind the last two decades, ever since Alabama really broke hard for the Republican Party, um, you Democrats typically have a hard time breaking 40 percent of the vote in these statewide elections. And so even all of this avalanche of, of uh, uh, dirt that's been dumped or that's come out about um, Roy Moore isn't – I'm still not convinced it's enough. And he still retains a decent amount of support in, in that state and which is what makes it so darn complicated. I mean there's not a ton of evidence that Alabama Republicans are ready to jettison more en masse. Uh, you see that on the in the Republican Party among the activists. You see that in some of the reports coming out of the state. And it's not like pressure from Washington or Mitch McConnell is going to change any of that. In fact, that only – 
uh, makes the, uh, you know, only adheres that support to Roy Moore in a place like Alabama. And I think, you know, at the end of the day, the real problem we have here is that we're expecting old standards to apply, standards that we're accustomed to, which is where a public official is revealed to have engaged in bad behavior of some kind in the past. You know, out of some combination of shame, contrition, loyalty to the party, they decide to fall on their sword. Well, it doesn't work that way anymore, uh, not in the Trump era and, and not in, in recent years. I mean, and, and we've seen that whether it was in Nevada, uh, with Nevada or I'm sorry, Nevada with Sharon <laughs> Angle. I always get that one mad. Then you get all the, the, uh, the angry tweets at you. Uh, <laughs> whether it's Sharon Angle in Nevada, Todd Aiken in Missouri, Christine O'Donnell, uh, et cetera, they just don't care. It's not like it was about a decade ago or a little over a decade ago in New Jersey where New Jersey's establishment Democrats sort of sit, sat down with Robert Tor- Torcelli and said, it's time for you to go. You're about to drag us all down or we're going to lose that seat. And he agreed. It's just not going to happen. So, so to be clear, you don't think this is in the bag for despite all of the all the revelations about more the sexual assault allegations, the all the weird stories about him pursuing teenagers. You you still think this is a potentially competitive election? Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think it's over. By it. we, we've seen one poll. Yeah. Uh, from the NRSC. And how many times have we seen – I'm not saying it's not true – that and that poll from the NRSC, I should say, has shown that uh, Roy Moore's support has cratered. Now, I there's lots of reasons to believe that that poll is true. But I've seen a million times – how many times have we seen this – where somebody with a vested interest in an outcome asks a question or releases the poll to the media. Notice they didn't release everything in that poll. They just released the numbers that advance the cause – trying to convince people that uh, Roy Moore will drag them to defeat. It might be true, but uh, I think we need to be very cautious before uh, accepting that. And it also might be true right now, but it might not, you know, it might not be true in three weeks. Yeah, uh, I mean, uh, a, a lot can change. Alabama Republicans cannot stand the National Democratic Party. The National Democratic Party is just not viable uh, in a state like Alabama. And so the prospect of, on the one hand, you've got it, it, I mean, I think a lot of it will come down to people's judgments on how bad this is. And it, look, it sounds to me like, you know, a lot of, you know, when you hear some of the comments, the lots of folks who are on the fence in Alabama are are assessing this. Is this is is Roy Moore like Wooderson from Dazed and Confused, you know, mm-hmm. kind of a little bit weird. And, you know, what's a 30 year old guy doing hanging out with, you know, at the Gadsden Mall on a Friday night, you know, talking to uh, you write in a lot of high school yearbooks, Charlie. Right, Exactly. <laughs> or is that true? Exactly. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. Like the one thing that I thought, aside from the, the sexual assault charge, the really disturbing thing was the story that came out yesterday from The Post, which was that he called a girl in her trig class. He called, <laughs> the, call, school called the school to have her pulled the, out of her trig. Right, and the what? principal, the principal didn't think that was weird. He was like, "Oh, okay, I'll just it's Roy Moore on the phone." Well, I'm sorry. That's the equivalent of the mothers of these women giving them permission to date him. So there's like a lot of weird well, stuff there, going no, on. That's in especially that, bananas. Well, at and, the time in the '70s, it wouldn't have been. At the time in the '70s and parts of the South, it wouldn't okay, have been that then, uncommon to get a parent to to sign off. But like, who calls? The school gets the principal to take a girl out of class that you don't even know so you can ask them out when you're like 20 years older than well, them. Well, and this was also a, a disturbing detail in the original Washington Post story that, that uh, kind of broached these allegations that um, that he was – Moore was going to speak to high school civics classes in the area and then asking students out afterwards, which <laughs> struck me as like a very premeditated uh, and needless to say bizarre situation. But so – um, <laughs> all, all that uh, 
Good luck, Scott. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Good luck with this segue. So, we, but we we were just talking about how this is going to affect the election. Um, I I I think I'm I'm. It's very hard to tell. I think I'm feeling a little more strongly than you, Charlie, that this this has really kind of hit Moore's campaign with a torpedo. But that that raises the question, Daniel. Tell us about Doug Jones, who the Democratic nominee, who some people think could be the next senator at this point from Alabama until until 2020. Yeah. Look. Yeah. Uh, Doug Jones is probably the strongest candidate Democrats have propped up in a quarter of a century since Hal Heflin. He actually worked for uh, the late Senator Hal Heflin. He is a former U.S. attorney whose uh, big signature case was prosecuting Ku Klux Klan members responsible for the 16th Street Church Baptist Church bombing. And this was about 40 years after – or 30, 40 years after the fact. And the Jones campaign has tried to leverage this. They rarely, rarely mention when they have to, unless they have to, that he's a Democrat. They like to call attention that they, uh, that Jones himself prosecuted Ku Klux Klan members uh, who killed young black girls in Alabama. And the hope there is to energize black voters. He's been, he's eager to campaign with only two national Democrats, John Lewis, the civil rights icon, and Joe Biden. Uh, Democrats sort of white working class ace in their pocket. Uh, um, And, you know, the last thing, Charlie, I know, I know you're going to like caveat me a million times here, but I did see in Suburban, uh, I'm I'm even flinching like mentioning this right now, I did see a lot of yard signs for Doug Jones. They could have been brought up by the Jones campaign, but if that is an indication of support, it does mean he's reaching some of the points he needs to hit. It's still... A, not an assured path. We should well, explain what you mean there. What we're talking about here with the yard, what Daniel's <laughs> talking about with the yard signs is a, a, you know, a longstanding discussion. This happens among political reporters, but especially between Daniel and I about the value of going out on the road and uh, it's seeing It's very important that you signs. guys send me out on the road all the time. <laughs> well, wait till we see your expense reports. And we'll get back to you on that. Um, but so to, to that point, Daniel, I mean, we've seen in their – you know, the reaction from the Jones campaign to all this has not been particularly loud. They haven't been like releasing a statement every day. They have not they have not wanted the National Party to jump in. What they have done, they've been raising a ton of money online from people who have seen the story and want to donate to whoever's running against Moore. And they started running a TV ad uh, this this week that uh, I think it, you know, it's speaking to uh, potential Republican swing voters, people who may, you know, typical Republican voters who don't want to vote for more after this. And we can play a clip of that right here. I'm a lifelong Republican, but I just can't do it. I can't vote for Roy Moore. Don't decency and integrity matter anymore? I'm a Republican, but Roy Moore, no way. I'm for Doug Jones. So, yeah, I mean, look, that's the ad. That's the the goal of that is to convince Republicans and voters who wouldn't normally vote for Jones to be able to say to feel, OK, it's fine to vote for this guy. He doesn't even he, notice he doesn't mention that he's a Democrat in that ad. Yep. And I, I don't want to say that uh, Jones can't win. I, I think Jones is a. a if anyone could win, it would be Jones. I think he's got a good profile there. I think he's been very smart in the way his campaign has played it. I think he's been very smart to keep the National Democratic Party uh, at arm's length. So these are the con- – if it was to happen, these are the conditions under which it would happen. Uh, I just think that we, sh- we should in general be very cautious about thinking that the Alabama dynamics are like other states where you've got a candidate who is hit uh, with a uh, firestorm 
and uh, suddenly craters, and that's the way things work in elsewhere. That's the way things work in a different era, but I'm not so convinced that's the way things work right now, and especially with this candidate. He is a guy who has been twice removed from the state Supreme Court, twice for bucking convention and disregarding the law. This is his brand, so he's not leaving the race, and the people who voted for him in the first place knew what they were getting, and so I don't know that the same... Uh, you know, rules of political gravity apply to him. Everyone knew who he was. This is his brand. Every pundit that's on cable TV calling for his withdrawal, every story that says Mitch McConnell wants him out only strengthens his hand. And all he has to do is run out the clock for a couple more weeks. One thing I will say with regard to that, the the, the 2012 state Supreme Court race that he ran provides a potential kind of map for us of how a Democrat might win. Mitt Romney won Alabama with 60% of the vote in 2012. Roy Moore got less than 52%, I believe. And if you break the vote down county by county, what you can see is that the the Democrat who came close to beating beating Moore for that state Supreme Court race in 2012, you could see if you break out the counties by, uh, if you order them by the share of college-educated whites in the county, their share of the population, the the higher it was, the more votes that uh, more sloughed off from Romney and over to this that this Democrat got over Obama. So a couple places to watch, I think, in December, Shelby County, which is this booming, heavily Republican suburb south of Birmingham, a lot of votes there. And then the, the counties surrounding the um, the big cities uh, in the state, Birmingham, Mobile, Montgomery, Huntsville, have a lot of uh, the college-educated white voters who uh, Democrats have been chasing in a lot of other states, but you know the South being the South, there there's a little less elasticity there in Alabama in, in past elections. But there might be there's evidence in this race that Moore ran and nearly lost in 2012 that they might be a little bit more gettable for for Jones. But you're burying the lead. <laughs> Tell the listeners what you what oh, yesterday. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. So that was the other thing that we found when we were doing this county analysis uh, is that the the. Shelby County uh, was, I believe, you know, this this big Republican suburb. Uh, Moore ran 15 points behind Romney that year. The only county in which he did worse in the entire state was this. his home county, Etowah, which is where all these reports home have come out exactly. about him kind of hanging out at the mall and trying to date young girls and stuff like that. And you have to wonder, like, did voters there know what was going on even if no one was talking about it? Because it's not a huge county. And you know what would be even better? If you could look at all the precincts and their distance from the Gadsden Mall. I'd love to know <laughs> if you saw, like, everything within – you know, walking that, distance. That is a doable project. I right. mean, look, I've been asking uh, my sources since this story broke, like, why hadn't we heard about this before? Why hadn't uh, Strange's can- Senator Strange's campaign been shopping this around? He basically said, like, look, a lot of people in Gadsden around would have said anything if you had asked, but nobody was asking about it. I think that's an important point. This has been an or- organic thing. It's like, the, you know, this is not an opposition research dump. Like, the, the Washington Post went down there and found these women and convinced them to tell their stories. And we're seeing a lot of people people doing that right now. And we can't uh, we can't end the segment without talking about Al Franken today. The Democratic senator from Minnesota has been accused of sexual harassment by a uh, radio host in Los Angeles who was on a USO tour with him in 2006. And um, she said that he forcibly kissed her uh, during a rehearsal for their, their show. And then there's a picture of Franken uh, grabbing her chest uh, as their, as she was asleep on, on the flight out. Um, and Franken has uh, quickly apologized and said he was joking, but obviously it's not funny, et cetera, et cetera. I, He's going to have to resign. You think? Yeah. 
I just think it doesn't cost the Democrats anything to push him out. It would make a big statement. There's a Democratic mm. governor in Minnesota. He'll appoint another Democrat. I mean, that's really interesting. It's cost free. Uh, the the, right? lo- the logic makes sense, and, and the really bad timing here, I think, for for Franken is it's coming right as the Democrats are finally beginning to have a reckoning about Bill Clinton. Uh, totally yeah. agree. You know, and that is what makes it especially dangerous for Franken. I mean, it's it, it's terrible. I you know I. All of us, we just walked in, we just read the story, uh, we saw the photo, and we know how bad that is. Um, but I have to say, just this the, this particular moment uh, in time and this particularly particular moment in democratic time makes it very perilous for, for Franken. And, and I think Eliana has a good point there. I don't think we've seen the last sexual harassment or sexual assault story that's going to affect an election uh, for the next year. I think they're, the, Congre- I think Congre- the, the Congress is this big black hole regarding this stuff. And we're starting to see a little bit more stories, you know, not with names attached to them, trickle out um, as we're seeing more stories trickle out in all sorts of industries. And I just think that this is uh, this is not going to end well for everyone. And speaking of research, I wonder how it, uh, or, uh, industries, I wonder how it's going to affect the oppo research industry, you know, because now that the real value in what you dig up on your opponent or uh, is going to be the sexual misconduct, the harassment and, and, Perhaps they weren't looking in the right places or, or, or pursuing this hard enough in the past, and now everyone knows it will really resonate. Yeah, I think this is going to be this is going to be a big deal in elections for the foreseeable future. All right, well, let's move quickly into our next segment, welcoming in White House reporter Nancy Cook. Hi, Nancy. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, so let's talk about Jeff Sessions. Our data point is three. That's the number of times that the attorney general has been hauled before Congress to testify in the last five months. He went there again on Tuesday to answer, again, questions about the administration and Russian meddling in the 2016 election and to fill in some blanks that he had left in, in previous testimony. Um, Eliana, this is like the song that never ends for the administration. And I think you could make an argument that Jeff, Jeff Sessions becoming attorney general has like blown up the Republican Party in the past year, given that we just spent the last segment talking about the it's, election to, it has to replace him. It has unleashed a string of events that, you know, surely the president is ruining the day that he nominated <laughs> Jeff Sessions. But now several other dozens of other Republicans are also regretting that decision. Um, yeah. So – Sessions was hauled again before the House Intelligence Committee. He was asked to address inconsistencies between his statement to the Senate, uh, to a Senate panel about how he didn't remember um, any conversations with George Papadopoulos or any written communications with George Papadopoulos about how he was in communication with Russian officials. When news of Papadopoulos' contact surfaced, he said that he, in fact, did recall that. In all of my testimony, I can only do my best to answer your questions as I understand them and to the best of my memory. But I will not accept and reject accusations that I have ever lied. I actually think that all of that is secondary to the fact that it's it's really becoming clear that he is essentially neutered as attorney general because his relationship with the president has soured and it hasn't bounced back. And he really is an ineffectual leader of the Justice Department. Um, that really is a position which requires a close, relate, close and trusting relationship with the president, something he doesn't have. And I'm 
it is interesting to me that he continues to uh, to stay in the position. And it's similar in nature, I think, to the president's relationship with Secretary Tillerson at the State Department. Well, I also one thing that I've been struck by, too, is just the idea that, you know, the Justice Department typically has a strong leader and operates independently. And it seems like, you know, Sessions uh, is willing to sort of do anything at this point to impress the president and sort of try to curry favor with him, including opening up investigations into, you know, this deal that Hillary Clinton, when she was secretary of state, the Uranium One deal that she struck. And he sort of floated that as a possible thing that the Justice Department could do this week. And to me, it looked like at least that it was a way to try to get in the president's good graces when, you know, the president continues. We keep hearing from sources and the White House continues to be so furious that uh, he even picked Attorney General Sessions because he felt like had he known Sessions was going to recuse himself on the Russia stuff, he never would have picked him. And that's just like a bone that the president cannot stop picking. And how about speaking of trying to uh, ingratiate himself with the president, the the investigations into classified leaks. Uh, one of the things he bragged about the other day was that, you know, there were nine open investigations in the last three years and now there are 27. So basically he's he's sending a message to the president. He is so neutered, as Eliana was, put, was saying, that now he's sitting there using this public forum essentially to send a message to brag to the president. Hey, you know how you care a lot about leaks and you kept wanting them at least pursued? Well, I've tripled them. <laughs> well, and it seemed like, you know, one possible out for Sessions was going to be potentially, you know, running in as a write-in candidate for that Moore seat. I think you guys talked about yeah, this. Yeah, right, riding in on a white horse to right. save, the, save the party. But, you know, the reporting, I, I mean, I haven't done this reporting, but all the reporting that I've read and um, Eliana and our colleague Alex have done seems like Sessions really isn't into that idea. And that seems like it would have been a graceful exit. I mean, the thing that I'm watching is we've been watching for months uh, to see how long Rex Tillerson lasts as Secretary of State. And I would add Jeff Sessions as Attorney General to that list as well, sort of like the what's going to be the survival rate for these uh, two key posts. I mean, the interesting thing to me about the about Sessions in this job and that I think has made it very hard for him to conduct himself in the job is that he's getting slammed not just from the left because of his – alleged ties to Russia and his oversight of the Foreign Policy Advisory Committee, which he essentially said was a complete mess in his testimony earlier this week, but also from the right for his unwillingness to um, conduct investigations into Hillary Clinton and into the Obama administration um, because they want pushback on um, all of the Russia investigations. And you saw him really get pretty uh, aggressive questioning from Jim Jordan, a conservative House member, and from Trey Gowdy, another conservative House member. So it, it really does seem like he's in a position where he can't win with either side. Yeah, we can actually play a segment of that Jim Jordan questioning right now. We sent you a letter three and a half months ago asking for a second special counsel. And if you're now just considering it, I, I What's it going to take to get a special counsel? It will take a factual basis that meets the standards of the appointment of a special and is counsel. That I would say it looks like is not enough basis to appoint a special counsel. But what I think is interesting just about Sessions, though, is just like ideologically, um, he is like very aligned with a lot of the conservative base on things that they want to see done at the Justice Department and even with Trump. So I feel like other compared to some other cabinet members, you know, if you just looked at sort of how they lined up on policy, he actually really fits that mold. And I think 
you know, would carry out a lot of what conservatives and what Trump would want to see at the Justice Department. But there's so much political pressure for him, as Eliana said, to investigate Clinton and to do all these other things. And he's not stepping up. And, and that seems to be overtaking everything. That's a really good point. Um, I think I would, I would just quibble with one thing that you said a few minutes ago, Nancy, about whether the uh, you know, jumping back into the Alabama Senate race would be a graceful exit. I don't think there are any graceful exits from the Trump uh, cabinet at this point <laughs> for someone who's taken as many as many uh, whacks from from the president as as Sessions had. That's true, but it might be better than getting fired. Well, yeah, that's that, that is a good point. Uh, so we'll have to see what is next for the Attorney General. Uh, but another another rough week uh, for him for sure. And for our last segment this week, we're going to talk about what Trump was up to last week. He just got back from that big Asia trip that we talked about a few episodes uh, ago. And yet uh, our, our data point for this segment is zero. And that's the principal takeaway from Trump's Asia trip, according to an analyst quoted by Politico's intrepid Andrew Restuccia, who was on said trip following Trump around the world for uh, the better part of two weeks. Uh, the quote was from Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer, who said that there was virtually zero progress on any issue that matters to Americans on the trip and called it a win for China. So, Nancy, what uh, what what's that about? What what is kind of the, the, the takeaway from this trip to China and Korea and Japan and Vietnam? Well, the takeaway is that, you know, I think that similar to what, um, you know, Ian Bremmer said, there really wasn't progress um, you know, there was no like new deals to show for it. No, there wasn't like a more coherent trade policy that we've been looking for from the administration set forward. Uh, you know, Trump himself gave a press conference yesterday to talk a bit about the Asia trip. And what he kept emphasizing was that he had like all these really good feel good moments with world leaders and that that kind of mattered. And what I found really interesting about the trip is just how it was presented, you know, on the White House social media and Trump's social media. You know, it was all about like the red carpet ceremonies and the military bans and all of the pomp and circumstance. And I feel like the White House and the president seemed quite wrapped up in that even if on all these policy questions, on the questions of North Korea, there wasn't progress. And even with China, you know, Trump really adopted a lot of language that, you know, diplomats, both Republicans and uh, Democrats, didn't love because it, they felt like it really gave China the upper hand in the relationship. And it, President Trump fawned over um, President Xi a little bit more than uh, some of these diplomats would have preferred. And so the takeaway is that not that much was done, except that there were like a bunch of military parades and state plus dinners, as they were calling it, and the red carpet was totally rolled out. And I think the president, who seems very susceptible to flattery, was uh, quite pleased by all of that. Eliana, you wrote a story before the trip about Trump's relationship with China and its president. And, you know, what what were you what did you see during the trip and how, you know, how did that kind of relate to to what people were saying beforehand? Well, the White House had to make an enormous effort to thread a needle with China. They're on the one hand really trying to pressure China into cooperating on North Korea. But on the other, they uh, are also looking to increase pressure with China on trade. And it's very difficult to do both at the same time. I think ultimately the reason we didn't see a lot of movement on this trip is that the White House is still looking to do more of the former than the latter. They want more cooperation from China. Ultimately, I don't think they'll get enough of what they need from China in order to really kneecap North Korea. China would essentially have to cut off um, you know, all of North Korea's energy supply. I don't think they're going to do that. And I think when we reach a point in um, when the White House 
comes to the point that they realize they can't work with China and North Korea anymore, China's not doing enough, then I think you'll see enough of the ante on some of this trade stuff. And that's when I think that the relationship between the president and Xi will become uh, pretty interesting. Well, I also feel like one thing I completely forgot in introducing this is that, you know, uh, one of the most crucial things that happened on the trip was that Trump did informally meet with Russian President Vladimir Putin on the side at this Vietnam uh, or this economic conference in Vietnam. And, you know, he did a, a sort of chat with reporters on Air Force One afterwards and said that, you know, Putin had told him that Russian hadn't Russia had not meddled in the 2016 election, and therefore we should just like leave it at that and believe him, and to keep questioning it would offend him. And that sort of also really overshadowed a bunch of the trip, even though a lot of it was just— This is about, not the first time this has happened, right? right. On, it on was like, foreign trips. you know, Trump was, even though they weren't accomplishing a lot, he was kind of sticking to message and not saying outlandish things. You know, aides seemed happy about that. And then he sort of said this Russia thing, and that like overtook, you know, the news cycle for two days and brought up all the Russia stuff again and and brought up the relationship between Trump and Putin. And if there was a silver lining, I think it would have to be that to a certain degree, trips like this normalize Trump and appear to frame him in the more conventional, traditional presidential lens that, that we're accustomed to. Um, and, uh, and, and that is really important, I think. And I don't think we can uh, dismiss that because uh, an, at least the early part of the trip distracts from all the ways that he's an outlier president who smashes norms on a daily basis and makes a lot of Americans uh, very nervous about um, – about what he's going to do. And so I think to that degree, that was a success for him. But then, like Nancy said, the, the, the Russian remarks, the Putin remarks overshadowed and undermined everything. Mm. Yeah. And again, not for the first time. It seems like the, the we've, we've seen this happen at least two or three other times on some of his foreign trips. Um, Eliana, you also uh, wrote just the other day about how the and again, this is definitely a theme that we've talked about in the past, but the, just the the foreign policy crew in the Trump administration continues to be under extreme flux. And there's a, kind of a new name that's now being put forward as a potential uh, secretary of state replacement if and when uh, Rex Tillerson uh, decides he's had enough. Yeah. You know, it's not clear when Tillerson will actually step down, but it is certainly the case that White House aides consider it a matter of when and not if that happens. He has, you know, the most important thing for a secretary of state is when he travels or when he speaks that it, people have the impression uh, that he's speaking for the president. And with Tillerson, it's almost the opposite. When he talks, people assume that the president feels the opposite way because that's happened so many times from uh, the Iran deal to negotiating with North Korea. Tillerson and the president are almost always at loggerheads. And so his position does seem untenable if he cares about being successful in the job in many ways. And um, that has not been the case with his CIA, with the president's CIA director, Mike Pompeo. He's developed a very close relationship um, with him and consults him about an array of things. That's what the president tends to do when he uh, when he trusts somebody. He he does that with Sean Hannity, for example. He uh, does it did it with uh, General John Kelly when he was running the Department of Homeland Security, and he does it with Mike Pompeo, which is why White House aides say that Pompeo is very likely to get another cabinet position that's more prominent than CIA director. Uh, they think Secretary of State simply because uh, Defense Secretary Jim Mattis seems to. Uh, seems likely to stick around. I have to ask Nancy and, and Eliana your your thoughts on the Tillerson thing. So I'm really curious uh, uh, 
what you think, what are the chances that Tillerson, say when he leaves, writes a big tell-all or goes public and just burns down the place? Uh, I mean, clearly, you know, I'm, I'm working under the assumption that, as most people are, that, you know, the things we've heard uh, that he said about the president are true. Uh, and he is a guy who, you know, sh- sort of a shoot from the hip guy, very honest. Does he keep his own counsel? Does he just retire back to Texas or does he just unload? You know him better than I do, Eliana, but I do feel I like... I don't know him at all, so... Yeah. Well, I have you've no covered idea. him. I've covered say. him, but I don't have a good sense of how he is as a person. Um, I don't... He clearly isn't somebody who likes the limelight, so... He, he also doesn't need the money for right. a book. Right, yeah, so... <laughs> former Exxon So I'm Mobile not chair. sure about that. Also, he was such a company man at Exxon and, you know, climbed the ranks, and I feel like people who are company men tend not to throw bombs after they leave a place, but... This could be a completely different situation. He's also never left a place before. He was exactly. at Exxon for decades. <laughs> I'm just kind of wondering for legacy purposes. Here's a guy who's enormously successful his whole life uh, and climbed the ladder, as, as you guys mentioned. But like this is, is you know, he, he's getting up there in age. Maybe he wants to set the record straight. Maybe, you know, he's a former Boy Scout. So maybe. But you could argue the legacy question for so many people in the Trump administration. I mean, you know, Jeff Sessions was like a widely well, a widely well-respected uh, senator who's popular in Alabama. You know, didn't get a ton of policy through the Senate, but like had a good legacy there. Was liked by his colleagues, and now his legacy is going to potentially end with this DOJ. And same thing with Tillerson. You know, Gary Cohn had a huge rise at Goldman Sachs. And now, you know, his legacy in part will be about how he got mad at the president after Charlottesville and the president has cut him out of some stuff. I mean, this, you know, has been a legacy tarnishing administration for a lot of people who have entered it. I guess I think of Tillerson as being different from the the rest of the folks in the administration because his experience is so different that he spent his entire life in the corporate world. And I just think the shock to his system, uh, not just of the political arena, but of the the Trump uh, organization and the way it operates might be such that he would be the one guy to just let it rip and um, say what he really thought and and why he left. That never occurred to me before. I'm now, now I'm really curious to see <laughs> what what happens when this does happen. Um, well, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut the segment off before we get into the uh, trio of shoplifting UCLA basketball players who have cast shame upon the Pacific 12 Conference this week. <laughs> uh, and uh, I'm just going to thank you all for being here. Thanks, Charlie. Thanks, Scott. Uh, Eliana, thank you. Thank you. And thank you, Nancy. Thanks. And as always, a big thank you to you, our listeners. Remember, if you have questions for us on the Nerdcast crew, you can email us at nerdcast at politico.com. And don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and write written reviews of the Nerdcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. So once again, thank you for listening. Thank you to our panel today. Thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and our researcher, uh, Politico Playbook producer, Zach Montalaro. Thanks again for listening. We will talk to you again next week.